there are a lot of folks in that research world who will say that probably 80% of what we believe to be true will one day prove to be partially untrue or completely untrue. Stuff that we learn about a particular industry, we have to be very malleable and actually be open to new interpretations that might change completely the choices we make. So in the book, we say, listen, take a look at what you believe to be true. And is that setting you up for something that may not actually be in your long-term best interest because it's kind of faulty? Welcome, EI enthusiasts, to the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast by Emotional Intelligence Magazine. Emotional Intelligence Magazine, or EIM+, as it's known for short, is a one-stop resource for anyone looking to learn more about emotional intelligence. In addition to articles, videos, and recommended books to help you develop and expand your EI, EIM Plus offers a platform for EI coaches and specialists so they can connect with individuals who are ready to take their life or business to the next level. Learn more by visiting ei-magazine.com. That's ei-magazine.com. Or follow us on Instagram at the underscore EI underscore magazine. You can find these links and more in today's show notes. I'm your host, Brittany Nicole, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jim Lair, who is the co-author of the book Wise Decisions with Dr. Sheila Olson-Walker. In their new book, Wise Decisions, Dr. Lair and Dr. Olson Walker help people understand what frequently derails the decision-making process and the steps they need to take consistently to make the best choices that they can with the information they have. Dr. Jim Lair, who I'll be speaking with today, is a world-renowned performance psychologist known for his work with top professional athletes and Olympians. And Dr. Sheila Olson Walker, who unfortunately was not able to join us for the conversation, is a behavioral geneticist who focuses on how to create contexts that unlock people's greatest potential. So we're going to dive really deep into this book. It's one of my favorite books that I've read in the past like seven months. So I'm really excited to dive deeper into these decision-making processes and how emotional intelligence fits into that strategy, be it self-awareness, be it self-regulation so that we can manage our energy more effectively to make those high-stakes decisions. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive in. And without further ado, here is Dr. Jim Lair. Dr. Lair, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Living and Leading with Emotional Intelligence podcast to talk about your new book, uh, Wise Decisions, a science-based approach to making better choices. I nerded out all over this book, so I can't wait to talk about it with you. But before we do that, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself in your own way to our listeners. Okay, I'm Jim Lair, and uh, I think the most important part of my life, I have three sons. And I have seven grandchildren, and I have had a passion for the application of psychology to human performance. I started a company called the Human Performance Institute in Florida, in Lake Nona, uh, part of Orlando. And uh, it was uh, an incredible opportunity to learn. It was a living laboratory of high performance. Probably today, some 400,000 people came through from every single arena of high performance, every aspect of the military, Blue Angels, um, flying team, um, the probably 
hundreds and hundreds of surgeons and people from the medical critical care industry, uh, medicine, and then in um, corporate executives and professional athletes. We had 17 number ones in the world. Um, and uh, so it was a living laboratory from chess champions to sumo wrestlers. And it was, for me, the greatest opportunity to learn about how the human body and the mind connect and how does it relate to emotion. And so my co-author was Dr. Sheila Olson Walker, who isn't with us today um, in the podcast, but she has a PhD in, in behavioral genetics, and we just had a great time. We both serve on a non-for-profit board together and applying all of this to children, to young people. And um, it's just been a great, great opportunity to, you know, really learn and to advance what we hope are important insights. And I'm hoping we can create some value for your audience. That's the whole intent here. But thank you for having me, Brittany. It is an absolute pleasure. And I absolutely love all the work you've done in this space. This is book number 18. Is that correct? 18. 18. Yes. Wow. That's amazing. All right. So let's get started. And this is gonna be <laughs> this is gonna be an interesting episode just because um anyone who's listened to this podcast long enough knows that whenever I find something that I absolutely love, I go down all these different rabbit holes. So I, I never stay on course, but that's okay. All right. So um, I'm going to start with this. So I was reading an article that said that this was from the insider, business insider, that said 96% of people fell when they tried to better themselves. And I would imagine that that statistic is largely based on follow through with their decisions and the emotions that are involved with that, right? Um, in in the book early on, and, and I quote, you say, human beings are skillful fiction-making machines. So I'd love to kind of start there about how we create all of these false narratives in our mind that either lead to irrational decisions or hold us back from making good decisions. That's really a, a great question. It's a great, great place to start because, you know, um, we have to recognize we are very complex creatures. We have the capacity for rational thinking and for really looking at things very objectively. We also are emotional creatures and we can get completely consumed in emotion. And um, as you know, Antonio uh, Damasio, this brilliant neuroscientist said, affect or emotion is uh, not just necessary for wisdom, it's irrevocably woven into the fabric of every decision. The problem is Emotion can overwhelm us, and our brains are capable of making complete nonsense up to get us to what we really want. Our brains exist to help us survive, number one, and to get us what we want and need. And if you really want something bad enough and you keep sending that message, I want that car, I want to be wealthy, I want fame, it'll figure it out, and it'll figure it out in a way that you really, uh, you know, you can cross all kinds of unethical lines and you don't feel badly about it because your brain makes it possible for you to do that and, and feel pretty decent. So our brains are always making stuff up. We don't have direct contact with the real world. We have all this data coming in through our sensory portals and it has to make sense out of it. And if you tell it enough, this is what I want, 
It'll figure out a way to get you there so that the only decision you can make is the one you wanted in the first place, even though it's a catastrophic mistake to go there. 100%. And that goes back to what Henry Ford said about if you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. And that's, that's a decision that's that you're making, right? That decision, I can or I can't. My grandma would always tell me growing up, I would always say, Grandma, I can't, I can't. She says, can't, can't do nothing. You're 100% right. Everything, just about everything we do is a decision, either to or not to. And even every thought we have is actually a choice to go there. And every neural impulse has a consequence. And so what we're trying to do with this book is put the decision-making process under a microscope and to look at what does science really have to say about um, how we make judgments? How do we decide to do something or not? And then how do we stay with the process? There are two facets. One is to make the decision. And the second part is to follow through with it. You talk later in the book, so I'm going to hop around a bit, but I want to start with the role of parenting in how we think and how we behave, because you talk about these inner voices that we create and how inner voice one, so there's inner voice one, inner voice two, and how our parents heavily influence our inner voice one. So can we kind of take it back to childhood and how parenting leads us to certain types of decisions that we make or how we process our thoughts, at least. It's another great issue. Um, One of the things that really came up very, very clearly in our work and the research on this book was that there is a place you go to make the decisions. And um, we decided, you know, you have kind of an advisor inside of you that is kind of recommending or telling you yes or no in this decision. And we called it your own decision advisor. And it came up Yoda, Yoda. So we all have, it's not the Yoda of Star Wars, although there might be some similarities, but we all have this Yoda that is making decisions uh, as to what whether I should or shouldn't do this. And what we learned was what that Yoda, the closest kind of understanding to that Yoda is this inner voice, the voice no one hears but you. That really becomes our inner coach. It's probably the most powerful coach we have as human beings. And that inner voice begins to form actually prenatally. The auditory cortex of the um, developing fetus actually, at a certain stage, can actually pick up impulses that may, in fact, start to form a a very primitive narrative. By the time they're five years old, that voice is already fairly distinct. Um, And that all the mother's hormones, all the stress hormones and everything are actually communicated and transmitted through the placenta. And so the child is actually being somehow, it's a learning machine very, very early, even before birth. But we've learned that the the private voice is actually the, is really the control center of, of of the person. And we call it command central. And that inner voice plays an enormously important part in everything we do, including decision making. So voice, inner voice one is an untrained voice. Sometimes 
our inner voice one is actually quite constructive. It's very helpful. And that usually is the accumulated um, really input of all the people that have been, in a sense, giving you suggestion and advice in their public voice. Their public voice becomes your private voice. And if you've had a very dysfunctional, angry, very caustic, very critical you know, parent or coach or teacher, some of that may have now become part of who you are in your inner voice. And the inner voice is the master storyteller. It's the master decision maker. And so in the book, we really, Wise Decisions, we help you understand, first of all, to reflect what kind of inner voice do you have? Are you proud of it? Would you uh, want this to be projected on a jumbotron when you're uh, about to make a decision? You can see what your inner voice is actually telling you. Most people would be embarrassed or many people would be very embarrassed because the coaching advice is not really solid. It's actually very demeaning, you know, all, but it really reflects in one way or another the input you've had from all the most important people in your life, the authority figures in particular. But we have in the book a way to try to transform. How do we transform that into a trusted, reliable source of wisdom that actually understands the complexity of a decision and takes inventory of, well, what's the logic here? What should I, what's the rational part? What, uh, what does my gut say? Just my intuition. And then what are my emotions that are bubbling up through feelings? What, what are the messages there? And you really take a, what we call reflective consciousness. You take a moment and pause and really kind of take a little inventory about where this is all taking you. And you look against maybe your values, your sense of purpose in life. And when you have a little bit more of a deliberate process, you're much more likely to make decisions that will withstand the test of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and this is where it all ties in with emotional intelligence, right? Bringing 100%. that awareness, making the unconscious conscious. And when I was going through my own personal development journey, one thing I found was my ego would prevent me from developing that inner voice too, mm -hmm. or, or altering inner voice one, right? And I found that you have to have some form of compassion, curiosity, and understanding in order to break through that barrier. Because I think we've been kind of conditioned to not want to look at those skeletons in our closet or analyze or self-reflect as you're talking about. Mm -hmm. What do you see? Because this is just based on my personal experience. What does the research show that is really holding people back from inner voice to kind of altering how we make decisions. I don't know if I worded that appropriately. But. No, I got it. It's another, it's another really important issue. And, you know, at the Human Performance Institute, I'm a research guy. We collected so much research, so much data, analyzed the data. And then I'm also a person, I'm kind of an applied psychologist, but I look at all the data that we possibly can. We did that in this book, Sheila and I. And, uh, it's so interesting. So many people, and particularly athletes, think that when you think something, you have a series of thoughts, your private voice is speaking to you. It's just like moving air around inside your head. It doesn't have any real, because you can't see the impulses that might be registering in a particular area of your brain. 
and you repeat these over and over, let's say with a tennis player, I hate my forehand. I'll never have a good forehand. Your brain is always listening. And that neural pathway becomes, with repeated energy investment, becomes myelinated. It actually becomes a pretty efficient neural highway. And all of a sudden, that now, that inner voice has been a barrier to you achieving what you want. And so it's really interesting how we have to be very careful about what we actually allow to be transmitted with that inner voice. And that's what the, the inner voice two is all about. Let's make this the voice of an unbelievably important and, and, and reflective, trusted coach that you speak to yourself and you coach yourself the way you would coach someone who was in exactly the same situation that you deeply cared about. You probably wouldn't say those things to them, but you're saying it to yourself as if it doesn't matter. It's going to be motivational if I just beat the heck out of myself. But if you do that repeatedly, that is actually having a neurological uh, Im impact and may, in, in fact, uh, change the trajectory of your life in an important way and will clearly, clearly color the decisions you make. That myelin sheath you're talking about um, that makes it easier for those thoughts to kind of fire and wire together, right? I, I think exactly. of, you know, if you're in the wilderness, if you're in the jungle and you have just a mass of trees and plants that you have to kind of cut down, right? The more you tread on that path, the easier it is to walk it, the less effort it is. And so it's kind of like, stopping going down the easy path and starting to create another one. Eventually that clean path will start to grow up again. Right. And so it's, it's less easier to travel down. Um, we kind of have to do that same thing with our thoughts, right? hundred percent. Um, you can't, you know, let's say you have some neural pathways that have been really strengthened that are not really in your best interest and really provide some very faulty, interpretations of reality, a lot of nonsense, a lot of false beliefs that are actually affecting your decision-making. You can't go in and cut those out. There's no way to just, once those pathways have been myelinated, you can't cut them out. But what you can do, you can begin to build new pathways that actually serve you better, become the voice of a, of a much more intelligent and trusted coach. And you do that repeatedly and you just don't go where the old path was, and it eventually erodes with disuse. It's actually energy investment that keeps those pathways alive. And it's the um, refusal to, in a sense, invest in those pathways and to, to create new pathways um, repeatedly over and again. And then it becomes habituated. All of a sudden, you have a whole new, gone from a four-lane road, neurologically, metaphorically, to a six-lane highway. And now it's kind of like the way you, and now this voice is the voice that actually helps you make better decisions. So you're 100% right. And, and you, I want to talk about energy in just a little bit and how that plays into decision-making, especially high-stakes decision-making. But before we do that, I want to talk about the way that our society is now with technology and how short our attention spans have become. How do you see the pursuit of instant gratification impacting people's decisions in the future and getting where they want to go in life? 
Yeah, it's another really difficult. It's it's a, really a, an issue that is really affecting our youth today. Um, we we never had this, you know, thirty years ago, where there was such a bombardment of all this uh, technical stimulation from iPhones, and where it's really the dopamine uh, system in the brain that's actually getting hijacked and you get this amazing jolt. Uh, dopamine is the, is the essential uh, chemical that creates all addictions. Um, when AKA dopamine feel is good hormone. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. It's the feel good hormone. And what we're learning is that when you are on a computer game or gaming and doing all this stuff on social media, you actually get a little, hit of dopamine. And then when it subsides, you want it again. And you want it again. And that that dopamine almost immersion, the brain is always seeking balance, homeostasis. So you want you're looking for the highs, but the brain realizes you can't, the whole body has to balance itself. And so you see a lot of these kids going into a sense of hopelessness and a lot of really just a, a sense of emptiness, that there's nothing in life. And they go from one extreme where they're gaming and on fire, and then they go to the other extreme where they're depressed, sad, and really wondering what life is all about. There's this really difficult bouncing back and forth, and it becomes very tragic if they make decisions when they're at a very high kind of dopamine uh, flooded uh, emotional state in high high pleasure, it's going to be a different one than when they are very kind of depressed, sad, empty feeling, and so forth. And we've learned a long time ago that the brain is not capable of really focusing on more than one thing at a time. Multitasking is actually a it's 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 a neurological impossibility. You're here or you're not here. You can you can diversify, you can focus on this and then focus on that, but at any moment in time, you can only really focus on one thing. And if we really want to be good at something, it requires total immersion. I call it full engagement. The powerful engagement is the greatest gift we have. And if we get a young generation so addicted to these momentary hits on uh, that come through technology, uh, it is really the antithesis of what we're trying to get in full engagement. They can't be fully anywhere. They're always looking to get another quick, you know, dose of this powerful neurohormone that's mediated by this nucleus acumen in the brain. And um, it really is, uh, it's a tragedy. And we really have to focus on it um, as parents, they, they, you have to take a lot of that technology away for periods of time. And even adults getting into that dopamine cycle can actually interfere with your ability to be really clear-minded and uh, really stable in the decisions you make, particularly the big decisions. And I see that even with people my age in their 40s, right? It's not mm-hmm. just the younger generation. It's anyone who has smartphone technology and has been using it for a few years, it's very quick. It's very easy for us to get into that dopamine uh, seeking cycle. Right. 
I I saw an, another article that mentioned Gen Zs are actually starting to swap out their smartphones for flip phones because some of them are realizing how uh, unhealthy it is to be constantly connected. And I think that's amazing that a younger generation. It's fantastic. It's, it, can, to me, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a glimmer of hope. Right. Because when so many of our young people ended up uh, in isolation during COVID, the only thing they had was uh, the technology of their iPhones and all the gaming and all that stuff, online gaming. And they became so addicted. It's almost like crack cocaine. They get so addicted to this technology and to this experience that um, they begin to lose sense that their their life is actually kind of being taken away from them. Yeah. And to, to have an awareness of this and to actually go back to a much more primitive technology like a flip phone, flip phone a flip phone, where you really, uh, you're not on the technology band all the time, is actually a really, really positive thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. You spoke about the amount of decisions that we make. And in the book, you and Dr. Olson talk about big decisions versus little decisions and the impact those little decisions have. I think so many of us want to make these big decisions, right? New Year's resolutions. I am going to decide (laughs) that I am going to lose 50 pounds this year, right? Big decision. But it's those little tiny decisions that we make every day to eat this cookie or not to eat this cookie to take this call or not to take this call, right? There's all these tiny decisions. Can you talk about the impact that little decisions make and why that is maybe a good place for people to start? You know, we tend to think that decision-making, wise decision-making is all about the big choices. But when you go deeper into that envelope, you begin to realize that sometimes the greatest lever we have for making great decisions are the little decisions that actually occur as almost a precursor to that. So, you know, we can make as many as 10 to 15 decisions in literally just a span of 10 minutes. Am I going to push the snooze alarm? Am I going to get up? Am I going to have breakfast? Am I going to work out? It just goes on and on and on. And we make those pretty much automatically. And we really want to take our best decisions, the things that actually lead to our best decision making. And the book is a real, there's a huge emphasis here on health. The healthier you are physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually, the better decisions you're going to make. So any habits that you have that enhance your your overall health and well-being is going to lead to better decision-making. So let's say you have a choice. There's a movie coming on that's a late-night movie, and you're pretty excited about it, and you've decided you're going to stay up and watch the movie. So you get to bed maybe two or two and a half hours later, and you never really thought about the decision being that big, but you uh, you didn't sleep that well because you didn't get into the same sink that you normally get into. And you had to set your alarm to wake up, and you're kind of a little bit foggy because you didn't get the full seven hours that you would normally get. And you actually push the snooze alarm. Now you're getting up a little late and you're a little foggy and you realize you don't have time to work out that you normally do. You normally have a workout that you do. 
And so you kind of, and you also realize, you know, I've got a presentation today and I don't think I really have enough time to have my full breakfast. I'm going to stop at Dunkin' Donuts and, and grab something. I, I need something to perk me up. Maybe, maybe have something that will give me a little energy, um, a little adrenaline here. So you don't have a normal breakfast. You have something that's got a lot of sugar in it. And now you get to work. And um, you normally have a lot of preparation time and you like to get into the room. There's going to be a lot of people there. And it's really maybe something that if you do a great job, you're going to get a promotion. It's something really important. And when you get there, you really haven't really done your pre-work. The projector that you would normally look at or any of the PowerPoint slides, something was wrong. You got in there late and you didn't get it fixed. Everyone was sitting there. And all of a sudden, you're up there and you're a little bit nervous now. You're looking out there. Your thoughts are not complete. And you're just a fraction of what you would normally be in that situation had you followed your routines. And that simple choice, you'll never go back to the fact that I shouldn't have watched that movie. That was the lever that actually got you into this mess that you're in. And so... We need to think about the things that actually help us the most and then habituate those, create habits, little tiny habits that get the ball moving. And so when we're going to make a commitment to do something new in the in, you know, the beginning of the year, it's probably little tiny steps, little things, setting an alarm, getting up a little earlier and just trying to habituate. Oh, it takes about... 30 to 60 days to get a whole new repertoire start established. And the more you commit to that, all of a sudden it becomes easy. Now you're doing the right thing at the right time. And it's enhancing your ability to make good decisions with your family, good decisions with yourself, and really great decisions as your leader uh, in your leadership at work. So the book is about trying to put a an amplification on a lot of these little choices that we think are insignificant because they don't seem to really be that important in the moment. But when you look at the trajectory that one decision puts you on, it really was quite important. Yeah, the ripple effect. And I, I love how you and Dr. Olson in the book have so many examples, just like the one that you used with watching that late night movie and just taking the readers all the way through the story so we can visualize that and see right. the tremendous impact that you have. And I think many people can relate to this whenever you're trying to make better decisions for yourself. You get into that inner dialogue between inner voice one and inner voice two, almost fighting each other sometimes that through that process. And what's really helped me is asking one question, and that is, is this decision, is this choice that I'm about to make a vote for or against the person that I want to become or the goal that I'm trying to obtain? And if it's a yes, then I do it. If it's a no, then I don't do it. And it just kind of silence silences that battle. Because as you say in the book, energy is a huge part of decision-making. And we can expend so much energy by just battling ourselves before we even get there, not to mention the additional, um, let me rephrase that. On top of that inner dialogue, we also have other energy drainers in our lives that impact how we make decisions. Can you talk about 
uh, how energy plays a huge role in decision making. So what you just referenced there, Brittany, was really important. Um, what you did, and you said before you make a decision that you think might be an important one, maybe even not one that's that important in the, in this moment, you reference something. You reference, you know, is this really taking me to the kind of person I ultimately want to be? And what that means is you've uploaded something for Yoda, your own decision advisor, to factor in to this decision-making equation. And a big part of the book is how do we preload Yoda so that it actually has something to actually reference. Every time you make a decision, you're, you're referencing something. And most people have no idea what they're referencing. And there's an area of the brain, the neuroscience hasn't really identified exactly where that's occurring. There's a whole con constellation in the brain the human insula is a major, major source of that, but there's an emotional component, there's a cognitive, there's a, a whole process, all the sensory portals um, in the brain are going to weigh in if you're actually um, taking real careful deliberation. And um, it's a central processing system. Decision-making is not just you know, get rid of emotion or just be logical or just trust your gut. Those are really false narratives. And so the more you can preload, this is who I want to be. These are the prisms through which I want to vet all my decision making. One of the things in the book is what we call a Yoda code. And to put it in, in places where you you often are in a decision-making situation and you put down those words that most closely represent who you want to be, which is really what you are doing in your mind. This is the person I ultimately want to be in life. And so when you are starting to get hot-headed, shall I go ahead and say this very cruel thing to this person? Shall I just intuitively just kind of write that person off because I don't have a good feeling about them? All of a sudden, you, you look at your Yoda code and maybe you put it on little post-its in your office or in an important area of your home. It brings you back. It says, wait a minute. I want inner voice two to dominate here, not inner voice kind of just pure inst instinctive kind of jumping off the ledge of whatever comes up. Um, that fear driven, is, right? What's that? Inner voice one, I would say, is almost fear driven. It's fear-driven. It's 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 non-reflective. It's just pure instinct sometimes, and so that and then energy plays an important part in all of this. If you're in a bad energy state, if you're in what we call low positive, low negative, high positive, high negative, all of those energy states factor into the equation. You make your best decisions when you're in a balanced energy state. If you're really excited and really positive, that might influence your decision-making process about what's what you can and can't do. Now, sometimes it might be really a confidence booster, but you really want to be in a state where you're balanced. The whole system performs best in a balanced, calm, reflective state where you actually, maybe you need to go outside and take a walk in nature before you make that decision. Maybe you need to sit on it for 24 hours because there's such an enormous um weighing in the balance here. And so generally when you're in a negative energy state, high negative anger, frustration, 
you're envious, jealous, you want to get even. That's a, when people look back on their worst decisions, whether it's road rage or anything else, it's often made in a high negative energy state. And the other is the low negative energy state where you feel sad, lonely, depressed, very needy, um, just really uh, bored. It just, you just don't, you don't feel like life has a whole lot to offer. You're unmotivated. Both of those generally produce less than really wise decisions. And so we ask people to be reflective. What is your energy state now that you're about to, you're about to make a decision? How would you rate your energy? Is it positive? Is it negative? Is it high or is it low? And if you're in a place that really isn't really what we're suggesting here, take a moment. Maybe do uh, take a yoga, do a yoga class, go for a run, do something that actually we call it the catecholamine wash when you exercise, get the endorphins going. And that will change the emotional balance almost immediately. Maybe listen to a laugh tape, watch a show that you really enjoy, just get you feeling really comfortable in your skin. And after that, look at the same decision again and see what comes up. Really regulating that nervous system, right? And, and when we make those, I think some people think, well, when I'm in a great mood and I'm super happy and excited, then that's when I should make decisions. But even in that state, we can make very impulsive, irrational decisions because we buy on impulse and those emotions. So I, I completely hear what you're saying that the calm and self-reflective state is, is the best place to make those decisions. Would you say that breath work is a great way to regulate the nervous system? Probably one of the most powerful ways to control our complex physiology, particularly the stress response, um, is through regulated breathing, a deep diaphragmatic breathing. Um, and just about every sport that we've been involved in, we teach breath control as a, as a critical component to managing what is called choking in sport or excessive nerves. And it's amazing how powerful breath control, you can't just do it in the moment, you have to practice it. And the more you practice it, the better you will get so that you can bring it into an arena where let's say you have to make a decision in literally just a few seconds or moments. Take some deep, very, very long breaths where you're, you're extending your out breath, what is really the recovery side of the cycle of breathing, the oscillatory cycle. And the more you take those deep breaths, generally speaking, heart rate, blood pressure, a lot of those um, sympathetic nervous system reactors actually start uh, reducing their impact on cognitive processing. So the parasympathetic can take over a lot of that um, alarm uh, kind of you know response that's occurring. And when that happens, you're going to probably even instantly within we I developed a video many years ago with tennis players called the 16 second cure. And it was a video that was how to teach athletes in tennis, how to recover between points. And they could do it. We, we actually used 
telemetry, all kinds of heart rate monitors. We used salivary, salivary cortisol. We did a whole bunch of measurements. And we found that we took the top best players in the world. And at that time, Steffi Graf was the best. And she took was one of the best players on the female side. And she was able to take only 16 seconds between points. And she did it so effectively, she could drop her heart rate, blood pressure, get into that ideal, what I would call your ideal zone of, of, of competing. And uh, so we, we taught that, and it became probably one of the most watched videos in all of tennis. And we redid it just recently, and it's literally all over the world. It's free to anyone. But breath control is a major part of that formula. So you're, you're very right that um, using breath to make better decisions might seem a little bizarre, but it's actually very, very helpful. Is there a lot of research around how long you need to breathe for it to be more sustainable? Or, you know, because for me, whenever I do breath work, it doesn't take very long to notice my heart rate go down. But as soon as I have another thought, then it, you know, ramps it back up again. So how can someone regulate their nervous system through breath so that it's more sustainable? Does it only take that thought to re-trigger that? Or is there kind of a workaround for that? With every thought that you have, there's instantaneously, you almost can't produce a thought without an emotional, some, some emotional uh, response associated with it. So not only do you have to control your breathing, but if you focus all of your attention on your breathing, breathing in and breathing out, there's nothing alarming about that. That's a neutral stimulus. And as soon as you allow your thought to go back to something that's actually quite disturbing, your whole central nervous system will start responding accordingly. And so the, the key is understanding how to use your breath and how to control what you are focusing on in that moment. And so uh, if you do that and become really good at it, really become a breath control expert, you actually, that's what meditation is. You know, you basically learn how to control your thoughts and how to control your breathing, your, your muscle tension. And if you practice that, you get really good at it. And so many people in various high-stress arenas, even military special forces, have learned that by actually building a competency in this um, they can go into maybe something that is really challenging, maybe life and death, a surgeon, and actually find themselves with their breathing control, can regulate nervousness in their hand, any kind of catastrophic thinking. And so even post-traumatic stress syndrome um, vets who come back and are obliterated, one of the arms of their training is to teach them how to use the parasympathetic system to shut all that alarm reaction down. And uh, so they get deep into meditation, deep into all kinds of things that help them to control their thinking and the way in which their bodies are triggered in response to a sound or a thought. And uh, the body's quite trainable. And the more you work at it, the better you get. I think that's the key. I think that is the key. The more you work at it, so many people, if it doesn't work the first time or even the second time or third time, 
they get frustrated and they give up. This doesn't work. And I think that leads into some of the truth traps that you talk about in the book, right? I mean, that is somewhat of a truth trap. It doesn't work. But your truth traps in the book, what you guys talk about is different. Would you mind kind of explaining what are truth traps and how does that prevent us from making wise decisions? So uh, the human brain is really something. I mean, everything we pretty much come to believe isn't really anchored in objective reality necessarily. So we begin to develop ideas about things, thoughts about things. It's particularly true in things like politics. We, we, we don't see them as beliefs. We see them as ironclad facts. But the fact is we most of what we learn and what we know has not been verified in some really powerful way that we know that we're, we're embracing the truth, the real world. We've not made stuff up here. And there are a lot of folks in that research world who will say that probably 80% of what we believe to be true will one day prove to be partially untrue or completely untrue. So the world is flat. You know, all the, the stuff that we learn about a particular industry, we have to be very malleable and actually be open to new interpretations that might change completely the choices we make. So we in the book, we say, listen, take a look at what you believe to be true. And is that setting you up for something that may not actually be in your long-term best interest? Because it's kind of faulty. You know, it's like truth. It's kind of like fool's gold. You really look at uh, that looks like real gold. Gold is truth. And if your stories are not based on real truth, it's called Pyrite, Pyrite fool has fooled miners for years into believing they struck it rich, but their belief system, they didn't really check it out. And then once they get the mineral assay to find out that all this money they've been spending thinking they were multimillionaires was a tragedy because all they have there is Pyrite, which is really worthless. And so we are fiction-making machines, and we've got to check ourselves all the time. Is this more nonsense that I am using? And it's hard to get to the truth. And if you hear other people say the same thing, and if it's kind of a tradition, so often we just accept that it's true. And what's, what's tragic is we allow that information into what we call command central, and this is what your Yoda is basing its decisions on because it really believes it's true, and it's actually not true. Um, so we, we have a, a really challenging dilemma that we, we need to know what we believe to be true or right or wrong and so forth, but we also have to hold things in a, in a, in a way that, hey, I may, I may not have this just right. I may be wrong on this, and it's called humility, it's called openness to the fact that you may not have your brain wired up right. And if your brain isn't wired right, if you have a lot of stuff wired into that neural processor between your ears that's faulty, your decisions will be faulty. So we have a whole chapter in the book about how do we get in there and dig around a little bit and to find out what is real and what's not and make sure that we control the 
the data that goes into the central command center, really vet it carefully before you allow it in. Have a little resistance. Don't just believe everything that you've been told and uh, be a very good gatekeeper because once it's in, it's going to influence your decisions and it will influence your choices about what you should and shouldn't be doing. So we're complicated creatures, but the more we understand the beauty of our brain, this homo sapien brain, however it developed, we have this capacity to actually observe how our brains are working. We can actually observe what we are saying to ourselves. We can actually stop and reflect in things that, you know, we can just live our life on automatic pilot. But if we choose to pause between the stimulus and response, which is the most sacred space we have as human beings, that is the uniquely human capability that will save us from our, our own brains that can take us down a, primro a primrose path and we had no idea that we were uh, being duped by the very thing that we run our lives by. Yeah, I 100% I agree with you. I think our ego plays such a significant role in being able to detach those false narratives from our identity. Mm -hmm. I think so many people attach those beliefs as part of who they are. And by saying, oh, that's not true, then they feel like they've lost a piece of themselves. So we have right. to realize that all of these beliefs that we hold, all this information is not part of our identity, right? And it makes it easier to kind of let it go. Um, this is a phenomenal book. And I'm a very visual learner. And I love the fact that in addition to all this wonderful research and information, there are graphics and there are assessments and there are opportunities for self-reflection mm. that you can actually write within this book. Before we hop off, I would love to just kind of ask, is there anything else that, what one of your favorite pieces of the book, writing it, that maybe we didn't discuss that you would like to kind of share with us? I guess, um, you know, I've written all these books. This is, as you said, my 18th. And every book I write is because I've come onto something that I believe is really kind of new, something that is actually going to help other people um, come to things that they may not come to on their own. I've been very fortunate to be around some brilliant researchers and in a living laboratory that, you know, it's almost like I I've... I've been given an opportunity to learn in an accelerated way. And I kind of feel a responsibility that if I've really learned something, I'll share it. And um, I'm hoping it'll help other people to navigate in their life a little better. One of the things that really struck me about this decision-making area, as we began to look at what are the real important competencies that people possess in life, we learned that a single decision can change the trajectory of your life for decades, maybe for the rest of your life. And you are unaware in the moment that you're making it, whether it's to take a drug, whether it's to get a divorce, whether it's to move to a new city and, and uh, take that new job. Those are the big ones. But there's so many other decisions that, we, um, that we're just not aware of the power of a decision in terms of the way in which we live our lives and all those that we care about, our families. 
So what's so striking for both Sheila and I was there isn't any, there's no classes in school for teaching decision-making. It's just, we just assume everyone knows how to make decisions. And parents have no clue about how they're making their decisions. And we learned maybe the most significant thing in the book is that we learned that we learned how to make decisions by observing those who are our authority figures, our parents, most importantly, how they make theirs. And then they, you, the, the children begin to realize kind of how these decisions are playing out over the long term of, of the parents' life and their life. So if they see their parents making very wild and crazy decisions in the heat of the moment, flying off into some rage, or in a very depressed state, decided to just quit and not let's don't do it anymore. Um, when you begin to see this unfold, you begin to realize this is really an area where people could benefit. It's not impossible. We just need to look at this is maybe the most important asset we have as human beings. What separates us from all other species, we can make choices. We can make bad choices. We can make great choices. But we need to raise the level of awareness and intentionality all the way down to our children and recognize that every decision we make, they are watching us make them. And that we need to be much more intentional and more cautious in our own life in terms of how we actually vet how how well informed is our Yoda. We need to let Yoda rule, but rule because it's really vetted with the right stuff, your purpose, why you're here, who do you and what do you care most about? What are your deepest values and beliefs? When Yoda is armed with those assets, it's much more likely to advise you as your inner coach, the most important coach you will ever have, to make the decisions that one day you'll look back on and say, that was one of the best decisions I ever made. Fantastic way to wrap it up. Thank you so much, Dr. Lair. Um, so where can everyone find your book? You no, and Sheila's not. book, Dr. Sheila. Yeah. <laughs> So Don't want to leave a, her out. <laughs> yeah, no, she's a magnificent person, magnificent researcher. She's just, uh, she, she's it was a joy to do this book with. Um, but you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's available everywhere. It was released December eighth, so it's just brand new. And um, um, I, I have a website, a gym dash. Lair, L-O-E-H-R, L-O-E-H-R dot com. And I'm on LinkedIn, and so is Sheila. And uh, we really uh, hope that uh, people find value in the concepts. I think it's a really important part of who we are, and I don't think it's been given the kind of attention that it should be all the way through um, adulthood, but most importantly with young people. Yeah, this is definitely one of my favorite books that I have read in the past several years. I mean, it's it's one of my top favorites. So thank you so much for sharing it with us. Um, I know my cohort enjoyed it too. Once I shared some of the insights, everybody was like, I'm buying it now. I'm already buying it. So I hope it makes a tremendous impact because it does have such a wealth of knowledge within its pages. 
Thank you. I so consider much. that a great compliment. You've been around a long time and I love the questions. You really understand the book. It's really great to have someone who's really read the book, understands the concepts and then raises the issues that I think are really the most important ones. So uh, thank you for that. And thank you for having me on your podcast. I've really enjoyed our interaction. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And it has been an absolute pleasure.